Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to go to the book of Jeremiah, and we'll be in chapter 2 today. All right. Excited to be back after those wonderful services. I got to tell you, man, it was so amazing to hear the Word of God through Evangelist Tom Harmon. What a sweet, sweet time that was for me personally, and then I know for all of us. But I'm glad to be talking about this amazing book, Weeping for a Nation, we're calling it. And uh, boy, isn't that true where we are today. How, how, do you, how do you know, for all this, you married people out there, how do you know when the honeymoon is over? How do you, well, what's, what's the sign? <laughs> you know, the, some, one pastor said, you know the honeymoon's over when the non-stick pan starts sticking. <laughs> Another said this, when you're brushing your teeth right next to your spouse who's using the toilet, <laughs> then you know the honeymoon's over. <laughs> uh, many jokes have been told about the honeymoon being over. But I got to tell you this morning, it is not funny. And you know this, it's not funny when a marriage disintegrates because of disloyalty or distrust or disinterest. These are some of the saddest meetings that I've ever had in ministry, sitting across from people, listening to couples talk about leaving one another and uh, the journey that their marriage has taken. And that view, that, that, uh, that look right there, that moment that we're thinking about, sitting in there listening to a couple talking about the journey of their marriage, that's a big reason why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Because there was a marriage falling apart right before his eyes. And this marriage was between God and his covenant people, Israel. And it was just beginning to crumble. And today we're going to see God explain through Jeremiah that the honeymoon has ended. But God, he is not to blame. God never moved. God never stopped loving his wife. He never stopped being the perfect husband that he'd always been. And I think chapter 2 here in Jeremiah gives us some answers to a question that many might think of when they read the Old Testament prophets. You're reading these old, so many prophets in the Old Testament, and you're reading these, and you might start to think, why is God so angry with Israel? Do these people really deserve this hard talk? Do these people really deserve these judgments that God says he's going to send? Well, God's going to answer that question with vivid pictorial language, and it begins, he begins this picturesque language with a honeymoon in chapter 2, and he ends with a divorce in chapter 3, or at least divorce papers. And throughout the chapter, God gives Jeremiah a lot of symbolism and by the way, when we look at symbolism in the Old Testament especially, we have one thing to remember is that this is a very Jewish way to communicate. Uh, Jewish people resonate with uh, images, with figures, with types, with signs. They like it. In fact, 
Remember, Paul talked about the difference between the Jewish and the Greek mindset. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he said, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. It was common knowledge that for the Jews to embrace a spiritual truth, they look for a sign. They look for something visual. But Greeks had a kind of a different way. And we today have more of a Greek mindset here in America than we do a Jewish mindset, if you will. But they look for wisdom, the, the philosophical argument, the logical argument, the you know, reason. But this very picturesque language that we're going to look at is very Jewish, and it also gives some very interesting uh, insight historically into the culture and customs of the time as well. So there's a lot of great things that uh, come up through this chapter. But most importantly, and I, this is, I think, ho- and hopefully what we all see, that Jeremiah is painting a picture of heartbreak. God's heart is breaking because the people he loves are walking out on him. And it's one of the saddest things to read, to be honest with you. But I think it's necessary, and it's in the Word of God, and we're going to, I think, very much resonate with it when we think about our own nation and our own families sometime, and then maybe our own lives sometimes. So this is why Jeremiah, again, is called the weeping prophet, weeping for his nation. All right, number one, we're going to look at these figures of rebellion that he talks about, and the first figure he gives is the figure of an unfaithful wife. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's start just with these first few verses. Jeremiah 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend, and evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Now God sounds like a husband here who is remembering the good years. Espousals, that word in verse 2, refers to the early days of marriage, also called betrothal. So God is picturing these early years of marriage between him and Israel, and the wilderness times, the wilderness wanderings, and that was about 700 years prior to this moment. It wasn't perfect in those days. He wasn't saying that. But he was saying that there was a special early love between God and this group of people that were coming out of Egypt. And remember, it was there in the wilderness on Mount Sinai that, he, that this couple came together at a wedding, in a sense. God made a covenant on Mount Sinai with his people. And God's feeling is, we got married It was just you and me out there in the wilderness against the world. I protected you like a husband. That's what he's saying in these verses. I protected you. Anyone who tried to bring evil upon you, I took it as an attack on myself. And I brought evil upon them. It was just me and you. And by the way, this is some real good practical principles for marriage here. Love, loyalty, protection, kindness, I mean, this is the way God was with his spouse. And I think about those, uh, those important things. And man, i thinking about it's us against the world. That's how I still feel with my wife. It's us against the world. And what a great loyalty uh, thing to think about. Stand by your woman. Stand by your man. And that's how God felt. I feel that way towards you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm protecting you. 
But what he's saying now is it's not reciprocated. I'm not feeling that at all from you. You've lost your love for me. So here's God's question, and let's see if we can see, really see his emotions. Verse 4, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Now I've talked to enough jilted spouses to know that this is the exact question that they always ask. What fault did you see in me? And you, it's through tears. What fault did you see in me that you would run after another person? What was it? They always turn inward. And this is, uh, God is saying the same thing. It's a, it's a very common feeling. God says, uh, what iniquity have your fathers found in me? God is not only angry here, but he is hurt. He says, why would you run after vanity or emptiness or just air? Why are you running after that? Verse 6, neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through the land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. Where is the appreciation, God says, for all the ways I've been a good husband to you? And I've looked out for you as a wife. I took you from nothing in Egypt. And I led you you through all kinds of dangers in the wilderness where no one survives normally. But I led you and I protected you. And then I literally handed you a beautiful land of prosperity. I gave it to you. And what did you do? By the way, this is a great reminder to never stop thanking God for the great blessings that we've been given. As the Bible says in the book of James, every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. It's all from Him. If The moment we stop seeing this life as a gift is the moment that we are on a, on a wrong track. As a matter of fact, um, the, often the first baby step away from the Lord is when we stop thanking God. We stop that heart of appreciation. No one thinks they're going to fall into grievous sin. Nobody does at first. But afterwards, you look back and you see the ways that you've drifted. And if you, if you can trace it back, it often began with a focus on self and not God's hand in my life. I stopped recognizing God's hand in my life. But with Israel, God says, it wasn't just being ungrateful to me, even though that's maybe how it started. As soon as you got what you wanted, you defiled all the blessings that I gave you. And you started using those blessings for abominable things. How sad, when you think about it here, that God's own wife took a gift that he gave them and perverted it. The the word here is abomination, which means disgusting. And one person who had been an unfaithful spouse told me as I was sitting there talking to them, it's amazing how far I went from God. This is after they came back to the Lord. It's amazing how far I went from God and the lies that my mind started to believe. Be very, very careful. But it wasn't just the average person doing this. It was the leaders, too, 
even the spiritual leaders. Look in verse 8. The priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. These spiritual leaders were the ones who were tasked with holding back the tide of evil. They were the restrainers. They're the front lines of restraining the nation from evil. The word pastors here means shepherds. And all these these priests, these shepherds of the people, the ones who handled the law, the prophets, they were supposed to be leading and feeding the flock, but they were feeding the people junk food and living in gross sin themselves. A holy calling does not make a holy man. And I got to tell you, just personally, verses like these in Scripture put shivers up my spine, personally. It's like God snapping his fingers like a dad would do to, to a son and saying, listen up, listen up. These spiritual leaders were handling the law, but they didn't know the author of the law. It was all outward, but not inward. The honeymoon was over, and God the husband felt deeply betrayed here. And like I mentioned, one of the saddest things is to hear the words of a betrayed spouse, and it's such deep, deep pain. I don't know if you've hardly ever heard of a pain much deeper than that. But if you've been through that, you know a little of what God feels here. And he uses another picture. Figure number two is a broken cistern. Verse 9. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Shittim, which is Cyprus in the far west, and see and send unto Kedar, which is in a tribe in the far east, and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. God says, I would like to plead with you to consider this, people. This is all through Jeremiah, the prophet, speaking to the people. I would plead with you to consider one thing. Travel the world from east to west and tell me one thing. Have you ever heard of a nation that has changed gods? It's unheard of. Did the Canaanites ever abandon Baal? Did the Babylonians ever abandon Merudach? Have the pagans, even all the pagans are loyal to their gods. And yet, look at what my people have done. It's it's so hard to believe, but God is saying, my people who I married have exchanged the God of glory, the one who created heaven and earth, for idols, worthless material objects that you hold in your hand. It's unbelievable. Look at verse 12. Be astonished. The word means appalled. Be appalled, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. That's a very forceful phrase right there. It means to shiver with horror. Be ye very desolate, dried up, speechless, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He said, my people have done two of the most insane things you've ever heard of. Now, let me tell you what they are. Number one, they've abandoned the spring of clean, fresh, constant flowing water. 
for a cracked, muddy cistern that can't even hold water. Now imagine living in a desert, and the most precious commodity to you is water, like it was in Israel. And back in those days, to have water running or water very close to you was so, so important, precious. But now imagine you find a desert spring bubbling up with continuous water. Would you leave that never-ending supply of water? That would be a, you'd be a complete idiot to do that. Just, ah, you know what, never mind. But now imagine that you leave that and then you go build a cistern. Because like here, it, rains, it rained only a few months out of the year back then, and still does in, in the area of Israel there. And an ancient cistern was a big hole in the ground, I have a picture here for you, a big hole in the ground that would collect rainwater for irrigation. And not only irrigation, but also human use throughout the year. So they would collect the rainwater here, but the water would sit in there for a good part of the year, getting stagnant and diseased. And they would keep it from leaking, and they've discovered these, and this is one from ancient Israel. They, would, they discovered these with limestone uh, pitch inside to keep it from leaking. God is saying here, imagine if you leave a beautiful, running, clear, fresh spring to go and to build a cistern, and then you build the cistern, and you don't even put lime in it, and it just leaks everywhere. You're triple stupid. You would you leave cracks, and now you end up with nothing at all. That is the point God's trying to make. There are no words to describe the stupidity of this, of what you folks are doing. That's what God is telling his people. Somebody said in our day it would be like turning off your water supply and digging a trench from the nearest industrial canal. I have a saying that we say often, and it's really eloquent. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. When we're locked into sin, it's like this. It's like you leave all reason. You throw away everything that you've ever worked for or ever you've, you've ever desired or the God that you love or the people you care about and you just do stupid stuff. And that's what God is saying. You've, you've completely lost your mind. My people have done something beyond, beyond comprehension. They've left the fountain of living water for garbage disease water. What a picture of life with Jesus and without Jesus. Anything we try to make our life about, relationships, stuff, I'm going to be just happy. I just want to be happy in life. We make our life all about that. Anything besides Jesus is like a broken cistern. It will never, ever, ever give what we need. But just beyond the obvious lessons here, Jeremiah is also helping them see just the the ridiculousness of something they've been doing as a nation in regard to the alliances they've been making with other nations. Judah has been making alliances with with Assyria and Egypt and trying to keep safe. Here's what he says, verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? In other words, why, Israel, have you allowed yourself to be spoiled by these other nations and become slaves again when I brought you out of slavery a long time ago? Verse 15, the young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Naph and Tahapanes, which are important cities in Egypt, 
have broken the crown of thy head? Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? God's saying, I took you from slavery in Egypt and gave, them, gave you your own land and precious freedom. And now when you need help, because you're feeling, you're feeling like the enemies are coming in, you turn back to Egypt for protection instead of God. You're drinking the waters of Assyria. You're drinking the waters of Egypt and you're ignoring the fountain of living water who has promised to help you. Such a vivid picture of how we tend to turn to the physical things instead of God himself, instead of the Lord who promised to protect us. I love what Tom Harmon said this week on one of those nights. He said, send for Jesus. Send for Jesus. We send for the doctor first. We send for everything else first. But rarely do we send for Jesus first. Verse 19, thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. This is an age-old principle. God will allow the consequences of our own choices to correct us. When God holds back, the backslidings here means turning away. Uh, thine own wickedness shall correct thee. We blame God for things in our life. We look around and say, God, why did you allow this to happen, this to happen? When sometimes it's just the fruit of our own choices. You make the choices and then the choices make you. We've all seen the life wreckages of those who've been backslidden. And reverently I say this to all of us in this room or if you're listening to me right now on a podcast or wherever. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. That's what God says. If he left to our own devices, we're going to find just correction in those consequences. Maybe this is why God uses this next picture. Figure three is a stubborn ox. Verse 20, for of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou sayest, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. God says, I broke off the yoke of slavery, but you became like a stubborn ox that ran wild. I took off that yoke and you just ran. You played the prostitute and made yourself available to anyone and everyone. The reference here to high hills and green trees is a, refers to a spiritual prostitution and a physical prostitution that would take place at these shrines that were built on these hills for Baal and Ashtoreth. It was a common thing back then. And God's people were just running just like the neighboring nations and doing those same things. They would go up there and do disgusting things. God uses prostitution or playing the harlot quite a bit in the scriptures as a term for idolatry. You're running after other gods. And probably it's because that's exactly how God felt. This is what you've done to me. And there was a lot of that particular sin in the worship of the pagan gods. Then God describes that figure four here as a deteriorating vine. Verse 21, yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? 
God used the picture of vines often for Israel. He says, like a hardworking farmer, I planted you like a nice vine. I, I gave you everything you needed. I gave you water. And I expected this vine to grow up and give me some good results, some fruit. But you gave nothing back. In fact, you just degenerated before my very eyes. If you've ever had plants like this, you understand how God feels. <laughs> we have some vines like that in our own backyard. We had some table grapes. We bought them. We put them all out there. And it was our own fault. We spent money, time, and everything, but we planted them right where it was shade most of the day. And every year that came about, I thought, this is the year we're going to get some grapes. This is the year we're going to get some grapes. And they never came. <laughs> Finally, we transplanted them. This five years later, something like that. We pl- transplanted them into the sun, and uh, I'm still, they still look like they're deteriorating, but one of them gave us maybe, you know, two bunches of tiny little grapes, and so, (laughs) but those stupid things, I look out there every year, and I hate them, (laughs) they make me mad, I look at them, just irritate me, But, but God, he didn't do anything wrong, he's a perfect farmer, he did everything necessary, but these people were so disappointing to him. They never bore fruit. He never bore fruit. Man, how sad, how disappointing to God's heart. And for us, may it never be said of our lives, he or she never bore fruit for God. Then God uses the description of a dirty and defiled body, figure five. For though thou wash thee with nitre, which is a mineral cleaner, and take thee much soap, Yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. The filthiness of your sin is all over you, and it will, come up, it will not come off no matter how much we try, how much you try. No amount of soap, which would represent good works or religious ceremony, no amount of good works or religious ceremony can wash away your sins. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. They had sinful hearts, And there is no human soap that can get that clean. Remember, during Jeremiah's early ministry, King Josiah was the king, and he brought a reform in. But it was not a full revival. And we see that borne out in the book of Jeremiah. People were turning, maybe with some of their actions, but their heart wasn't in it. For a true cleansing, there must be a heart bath. You can clean up the outside of a person, But the inside could be just as wicked as it's ever been. And I always remind us that the military is good proof of that. I'm so grateful for the military. And they clean up a guy, a young man. They put him in line. They they teach him some good things. They clean him up. Man, it's sharp. But they can't do anything for the inside. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away sins, the Bible says. Then God uses some animal imagery. The figure six here is a wild camel and donkey. How canst thou say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary, a camel, traversing her ways. Apparently, some were denying that they were doing anything wrong. I've not gone after Balaam. Reminds me again of a cheating spouse. Trying to cover what they've done. Oh, no. God asks, how can you say that you're not going after these other gods? Look at what you do in the valley. The valley here is a reference to the valley of Hinnom, where they would sacrifice children. 
You may fool yourself into thinking you're not doing anything wrong, but your actions say otherwise. You keep going back to it, back and forth, back and forth. You're like a camel running loose in the desert, traversing her ways or literally crisscrossing her tracks. You have no self-control. You run right back into your wickedness. You're addicted to evil. Then God gets more graphic. Verse 24, a wild ass used in the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they shall find her. This is referring to a female wild donkey in heat. God is saying your sin is like the uncontrollable sexual urge of an animal. Snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. Has to do with the instinctive mating rituals of of the female donkey. Let me read this to you about a donkey. The habits of female donkey in heat are dramatic and vulgar. She sniffs the path in front of her, trying to pick up her scent of a male from his urine. When she finds it, she rubs her nose in the dust and then straightens her neck and with head high, closes her nostrils and sniffs the wind. When she is really, well, what she is really doing is sniffing the dust which is soaked with the urine of the male donkey. With her neck stretched to the utmost, she slowly draws in a long, deep breath, then lets out an earth-shaking bray and doubles her pace, racing down the road in search of the male. And this reminds us of people who have that uncontrollable addiction to sin. Wickedness doesn't come searching for them. They sniff it out and go looking for it. And God says, you're just like this, folks. You're just like this. I've married you. And you just run it all over the place. God tries to hold that person back by saying this, verse 25, Withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst. But thou sayest, there's no hope. No, for I have loved strangers and after them will I go. They're an addict. They are an addict who says, there's no hope for me. I'm too far gone. I have to go after this vice. I have to. Such a glimpse into human nature here. God knows what people are thinking and how they feel. God sees it all. But let us be clear about one thing. They may say that there is no hope, but there is hope. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. All these things I'm laying out, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, it's not fun. It's not a fun thing to teach. (laughs) But the next chapter, we're going to see how this can all be turned around. Figure seven is the figure of a disgraced thief. As the thief is ashamed when when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. Like a thief caught in the act, he's saying. The evidence is all over them. Verse 27, saying to the stock, which is a piece of wood, thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise, save us. Again, a reference to the disgusting things that would take place up on these hills. Wood and stone represent the male and female deities, Baal and Ashtoreth. God says, you say to wood, this piece of wood, you're my father, and to a stone, basically you're my mother, you brought me forth. In other words, you go up there, do these evil sexual things, and then you give these false deities credit for creating life. What is wrong with you? You do all this, But then what happens when you get into some serious problem? You call on me to save you. No one is an atheist in a foxhole. Verse 28, but where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise 
if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. God is saying, when will you see the foolishness of this stuff? You have thousands of gods, but not one of them can save. You go running after, you come running after me, but I'm telling you, go run after them and see if they can save you. You know they can't. You have a thousand gods, but not one of them can save. Sounds like what Pastor Mike deals with in India. Millions of gods in the Hindu religion, but not one of them a savior. Figure eight is the hardened children. He says, wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. In vain I have smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Basically, I sent prophets to discipline and correct you like children. But you were like lions who hunted them down and killed them. O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. God says, have I, have I been dry to you? Have I been dark? In other words, have I been absent? Have I not been there for you to lead you and guide you? And yet, like a stubborn child, you say, you're not my boss. You're not my boss. I will come to you no more. We, hope, we, we humans can be so unbelievable sometimes. It really, we really can and this next one is really unbelievable. Figure nine, a forgetful bride. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Man, this is an interesting verse. This is unheard of. I've done many weddings and have been to many weddings. And I've never seen a bride come down the aisle in her jeans because she forgot her dress. Never seen it. And notice how dresses have always been the centerpiece of weddings, even back 3,000 years ago. You know, those, these days, those babies cost more than any other part of the wedding combined, it seems like. But the point here is, that bride ain't going to forget her dress on that day. That, it's not just a dress. It's a dress. And yet God says, my people have forgotten me. The God of the universe, days without number. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways. In other words, why do you plot and scheme to win your idolatrous lovers? You seek after other lovers so well that you could teach a class to the world's prostitutes on how to do it. That's what it says. Therefore hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways. You could, you could teach the world how to sin. Verse 34, also... In thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. He's saying you've come so far in your evil that you're now killing the poor and the helpless, the innocent, without any just cause. You didn't catch them doing something wrong and, and so punished them. No, you just kill them. And let me just remind everybody, an immoral society, an immoral nation, always leads to violence. Always. And this also could refer to child sacrifice. God is speaking to his people about the child sacrifice they've been doing. And I want to just say again, think abortion. The blood of the poor innocents is on your skirts. But here is their response to all this. Verse 35, Yet, yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely this, his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because... Thou sayest, I have not sinned. That's God speaking. 
Reminds me of dads and their little girls. You know, because I'm innocent, surely his anger will turn from me. They try to look all cute and innocent, those little precious little girls. But did you know even little girls are just as depraved as those dirty little boys? <laughs> we all are. Don't be blind to your own sin. Don't try to downplay it. God pleads his case against them. And his last image here is figure number 10, uh, prisoners of war. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt as thou wast ashamed of Assyria. Yea, thou shalt go forth from him and thine hands upon thine head. For the Lord hath rejected thy confidences and thou shalt not prosper in them. In other words, you've made these alliances and put your trust in Egypt like you did with Assyria, thinking that they can help you, but you'll soon be ashamed because they can't help you. You'll be ashamed with Egypt just like you were with Assyria, and you're going to be one day led into exile with your hands upon your head, hands upon thine head. This is a reference to being a prisoner of war. You're going to be led away into bondage. Why? Because God has rejected those things which you put so much confidence in. This is the absolute vanity of placing confidence in man. The list in this chapter reveals why the honeymoon is over. Again and again and again, he just, he just puts all these things out there in picturesque language. Israel and Judah have deeply hurt God. And they've broken the covenant with the God who loved them and married them. Again, next week we're going to look at what God expects after laying out these charges. And how it can all be turned around. But let's apply this to us right now real quick before we pray. Where are you with Jesus? Is the honeymoon over? Maybe it's time to repent. Maybe it's time to reignite the flame of love and devotion that you once had with him. And if you feel any slipping of the heart, then come back now. Come back now. Lord, we all come to you right now. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.